Praise God. Praise God. I want to talk to you a little bit about Jesus' prayer. When Jesus prays, this is our second second sermon of a mini-series in our Gospel of John. Um, when Jesus prays. This morning I want to talk to you about when Jesus prays for his friends. When Jesus prays for his friends. Um, last week when we, uh, where, where we left off, we began into this prayer um, that Jesus is praying in John chapter 17 by unpacking the first section of this prayer, which is when Jesus prays for glory. And we, we talk about that this prayer, if you, in a simplistic way, we can divide this prayer into three, into three particular categories. One is when Jesus prays for glory for himself. The other is when Jesus prays for his friends, those being the disciples who were following him at that time. And then the last part of this prayer is when Jesus prays for us. When Jesus prays for all the believers to come. And so we are in the middle of this passage where Jesus begins to move from praying for himself. Where he began in verse 1 by saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. That your son may glorify you. And we discussed the unusual way in which the father glorifies the son. He he glorifies the son by taking the son through death, crucifixion. He takes the son through suffering because it's in that suffering that resurrection comes. And it's in that resurrection, that life, death, burial, resurrection, that the salvation of the world comes. Hence, the glorifying of Jesus comes. And Jesus says, in return for glorifying me, I will glorify you. In other words, I'll win. In other words, through my death, a people will be won to you that will forever seek your praise and forever seek your glory and forever seek your fame and forever seek your renown. And so Jesus' prayer is answered when Jesus dies and resurrects and then he begins to bring through that death and resurrection. He begins to win a people for God and those people glorify God. And so he moves out of that prayer for himself, this prayer that saves you and I from eternal judgment. And brings the fellowship with the Father. He moves beyond that prayer. Now into a prayer for the people that he, God the Father, has given him up until this point. Jesus moves the prayer away from glorify me to a prayer for friends. Those who were called at the, those who were called at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry when Jesus first began his journey. The first, the, the very beginning, he began to call people. He, he, he saw people along the way. That's where he met Peter and, and, and that's where he met John and, 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 and others. And he pulled them in and they began to follow him. And so Jesus is now praying for those people. Call those friends his disciples. Jesus calls them in this prayer, the people that you gave me. Before Jesus makes his request concerning his friends, he gives the reason why the father should hear this prayer. Why should the father answer this prayer for his friends? This request that he's about to make for his friends. It begins, the why begins in verse 6. It says, I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. They have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. And I am praying for them. And I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. The chief reason that, that Jesus gives to the Father for hearing this prayer concerning his friends is that the disciples are, is it, the disciples are given to Jesus by the Father. That's the chief reason. 
In other words, the disciples, the family, the, the friends belong to God the Father himself. And what are the qualities of these people that belong to God? Well, first of all, they were given to Christ by the Father. The action of coming to Christ, believe it or not, is not an action that we ourselves can claim alone. Christ declares that we come because the, because God the Father brings us to him. According to Jesus, the credit belongs to God, not to us. This is not Jesus misspeaking. He's, he's made these sort of claims before. For example, earlier in the Gospel of John, some of those who were following Jesus at the time were taken back by one of the hard sayings amongst many that Jesus declared during his earthly ministry. And they were having difficulty determining whether or not they should continue to follow him, whether or not it was worth it based on some of the hard things that he had just shared with them. And I'll pick up the story in chapter 6 of John, verse 60, where it says this. It says, when many of the disciples heard that hard saying from Jesus, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? In other words, is this worth it? Should we continue on with this type of, with, with this type of talk being declared amongst, uh, being declared from his mouth? In verse 61, Jesus says, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this and saying, I'm not sure we should continue to follow. He said, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me. Listen, unless it is granted by him or unless it is granted him by the father. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. The father has to grant passage to us. And verse 66 says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him so those who are able to press past the difficult sayings of Jesus and those who are willing to lay down their lives and livelihood and follow Jesus do so not simply because of personal personal preference or personal power but they do so because there is divine power at work from God the Father through the Spirit if you are here this morning and you have come to Christ as a disciple and a follower, know that you aren't here simply as a product of your own will. Know that you aren't here simply as a product of your own vision of God. When Paul was on the road to Damascus, he saw God because God chose to make himself known, right? You are walking with Christ because God's raw power is at work to make you see. Even through the hard sayings, even through the hard callings of Jesus. The same can be said about the ones that Jesus is praying for in John chapter 17. His friends, those friends whom the Father, listen again, has given to the Son. But they are not just friends that the Father has given him from a um, celestial, celestial place or a heavenly place. But they are friends that the Father has given him from the world. That's another quality of these men, that they are of the world. 
In other words, there is nothing of divine quality in them that separates them from the rest of the people in the world. There is nothing in them and of themselves that qualifies them to be considered followers. There's nothing special about this group. He brings them out of the same world that many are left in rebelling against God. And this is what the word of God says about all of us, including the disciples who choose Jesus during during his time on earth to follow him. The word says in Ephesians chapter 2 that all of us were dead in our trespasses and sins. It says that all of us were followers of this world. We were all following the world's system and the world's philosophy and the world's way of living life. It says that we were all following the prince of the power of the air. That means that we were all following the, 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 the direction and marching to the cadence of the devil himself. He says the very spirit was now, that, that is now at work in those that are disobeying God was once at work in us. At work in you and at work in me. What happened? In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, but God, God being rich in mercy, to the great love in which he loved us, or with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive. Doesn't say, but Brian. And all of his splendor and all of his wisdom and all of his glory said, God, yes, I'm so glad that I had enough smart. There's no but God while Brian was dead. Awaken Brian to see. Bad news is there until we get to verse four and then we get to the but God. And so what separates these men is not that they're special. What separates these men is God intervened while they were in the world. So these men were given to Christ by the Father. These men were given to Christ by the Father from out of the world. But these men also embraced Christ for who he was. Verse 7 says in chapter 17, now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Jesus is praying for friends who received him. They came out of the world. They were given to him by God. But it was through the act of receiving him that they are also now considered his friends. So in the mind of Christ, there is both a active quality to this relationship and a passive quality to this relationship with his disciples. They were given to him by his father, and yet they received him. You tracking with that? Now what we want to do is we want to try to figure that out, right? How are they given to them and they received them? I personally don't want to mess too much with that. I don't want to question where one begins necessarily and where the other ends. Just know that while we are at work to receive 
Him. God is at work to enable our receiving of Him. Do you understand that? And so there's some mystery going on with God. That's beyond our pay grade, as, uh, as some would say. But how did they receive him? How, in what way did they receive him? They received Jesus as he manifested his father's name. They received Jesus by receiving his words as well. Verse 6 of chapter 17 says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. This is, that is to say that during Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus made the revealed character of God. That's what it means to manifest the name of the Father. He, made, he revealed the, 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 the character of God the Father to his disciples, to his friends, and they embraced him when he did, when he did so. Notice that he describes their embracing of his manifestation as a keeping of words. See, that's the, chief, that's the chief means by which we receive Jesus, through the keeping of his word. He spoke the words of his father, and they heeded them. And in so doing, they received and embraced him. Does that make sense? By embracing and receiving the words of God the Son, we embrace and receive God the Son. Verse 8 says, for I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know that in, in truth that I came from you and that and they have believed that you sent me. I have given them the words, they received them and through that receiving they have come to believe that I was in fact from you. The message of the gospel is the means by which we receive Christ. We receive the message, and in receiving the message, we receive the messenger, or we receive the object of the message. We cannot receive him and then reject what he has said concerning himself. Do you understand that? We receive him when we receive his words, which is why saving faith cannot just be simply grasped just by what we do. People can't come to saving faith just by doing some stuff. And then people just watch you do stuff and say, huh, it's interesting. Yeah, I think I'm saved now because of, no, 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 that's not how it works. There has to be a proclamation made. And words have to be embraced in order for the Savior himself to be embraced. He's saying they receive me by receiving my words. Paul says, says something like this in the book of Rome when he writes to the church at Rome. In chapter 10 of that letter, he says this in verse 14. How then will they call on whom, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom, in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the Jews. But they have not obeyed, uh, not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Listen, so faith comes from In hearing through the word of Christ. Saving faith comes through words proclaimed. And when words are heard and received, saving faith to receive the Savior comes. You're tracking with that. These men receive 
the words of Christ. These followers receive the words of Christ. And in receiving the words of Christ, they receive Christ himself. But also, Jesus says in verse 11 of chapter 17, that he's about to leave. And that's another reason why the Father should answer this prayer. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you, but they will be left behind. And so that's why I am praying and making this request to you concerning them. Jesus will no longer be physically present. He will need the Father to answer his prayer for them in his absence. See, the disciples already sensed this. If you if you've marched with us through John, then you know there was a point where Jesus began to announce that he was preparing to leave. And the disciples immediately grew antsy and had angst about that departure, didn't they? They began to say, wait a second. What are we going to do in your absence? Because they know that they need someone to be present with them. They know that they can't, they won't stay if it's left up to their own devices. They know they can't live in this life without him present or without some divine help aiding them. And so Jesus is praying to the father for that help for his friends. And so we're back to the question, why should the father actually answer the prayer? Well, because he gave them to Christ and because they came from out of the world and thus they are in need of divine favor. There's nothing special about them that's going to allow them to make it through to the end. They need someone else to operate on their behalf. And because the friends that the Father gave Jesus out of the world have received the words of Jesus and thus they have received Jesus. And so therefore, that's why he should answer this prayer. But not only that, think about this. Jesus brings this truth to bear on us in verse 9. Look at verse 9 very carefully. He says this, I am praying for them. For them. The followers, the ones that receive, the ones, the ones that receive Christ, the ones that were given to Christ by the Father, the ones that were plucked out of the world and brought into a saving faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. That's another hard saying by Jesus. That Jesus expresses to the Father that his request is not being made for those who do not belong to him. He's not praying for them. That's tough to hear, Jesus. is not praying for others. Doesn't mean that Jesus does not love others. Of course he doesn't. John chapter 3 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We know that Jesus loves. It's love that sends Jesus, partly, to die for the world. But what it does mean is that his most loving concern for those who have not received him is that they come to receive him. And as a result, be made his as well. He's not praying that they be comfortable. He's not praying for them being kept where they are. He's not praying for them to stay in their situation, their current plight. Jesus' desire is that they be his. We can do a lot of great things and perform a lot of great works. 
But if they are not ultimately leading people to coming to know and receive Christ as Savior and Lord, we are still leaving them in the worst of conditions. A condition that leaves them in the world without the covering of the Savior of the world. Our chief aim, our final goal, your chief aim, your final goal, for all of your good works and all of your doing should be that men, women, and children come from out of the world and receive Christ as Lord and as Savior. So Jesus is not praying for them in this prayer because this prayer has a particular air of fellowship and relationship and communion associated with it. This is a prayer for beloved friends. This is a prayer for those who have embraced him. And so what does he pray for? Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even we are one. Keep them. That's the prayer. That's the prayer for his friends. Keep them. That's the prayer for those that have received him. That's the prayer for those that have been given to them, to him. That's what, that's the prayer for those that are, will be leaving or that he will be leaving and will no longer be bodily present alongside. Keep them. And this is the prayer that you're in need of. That you be kept. He first prays by praying that the Holy Father would keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Here's what's interesting about Jesus' keeping prayer. It doesn't start with the threat of someone individually falling away. It starts with the threat of the family of God falling off. Keep them one. Keep them one. Doesn't start individual falling off. It starts with the family of God being separated. You understand why? Because one of the most, of the greatest threats of the devil in the church is not individual backsliding, but it's the church being divided. It's the family of God being separated and isolated from each other. And so the, Jesus begins this prayer of keeping by saying, keep them together. Keep them one. When you look throughout history, Satan has often, often sifted the church by separating first the church. Putting you on an island is where he is most effective to get you, isn't he? In the second letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians, he highlights this when there's a brother who had committed sin and now he was grieving his sin and repenting of his sin and seeking to be brought back into the fellowship of the family of God. And the family of God was a little snobbish about it. It was like, well, I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've showed us enough forgiveness. You did some ugly things, sir. Not sure if we're going to be able to bring you back based on those things. And Paul says this to the family of God that he writes to. He says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. 
So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote. That I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Listen. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. Did you hear that? See, by withholding forgiveness and maintaining division, Paul says that we run the risk of being outwitted, outsmarted by Satan. Jesus knows that Satan will use whatever he can use to divide us. To divide his church, to divide his friends. And so he, Satan drives wedges of racism, partisan politics, nationalism, ethnocentrism, money, prestige, power, minor disputes over doctrine. Whatever he can do to drive a wedge into the church. And so Christ prays to the Father to keep his disciples together. As you sit in this morning and you reflect on that, in what ways can you, can you, what ways can you allow the Father to use you to see that this prayer is realized? How can he use you to keep us as one? How can he use you? Maybe it's by extending more grace than you yourself have received in a relationship. Maybe it's by forgiving someone, maybe another Christian perhaps, Who you have had a poor relationship with for days, for weeks, maybe even for years. Maybe maybe you can see this prayer realized by being present in the church family and being a uniting force in the church family. When you see division, you go in and you jump in and you, you weed that division out. And you bring brothers and sisters together that are choosing to separate. Maybe you can realize this prayer by fighting the natural tendency to isolate yourself from the church. Fighting the natural tendency to retreat to your corner when things get tough. Because that's what we do, right? The moment we're tempted, the moment where things get tough on us, whether it be the pressure of life, whether it be the temptation of sin, what we are often tempted to do is not draw closer to the family, but retreat back into our corners. And maybe God wants you to honor this prayer by going in, leaning into the family, rather than moving out from the family. Maybe God wants you to answer this prayer by sacrificing your desire for individualism. Through showing love in whatever capacity he has given you to show it in the family of God. Satan wants to separate, and so he prays, keep them as one. But he also prays to keep them like I kept them. He says in verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, and which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now listen to that. He says, I kept every single one of them except the one that was meant to be lost, Judas. You know what that means for you and I? You know what that means for his disciples? Is that Jesus doesn't lose people. 
I know that's not what you some, I know that's what you, not sometimes you hear. No, I know we have this kind of picture of Jesus where, where he's carrying all of us like little children through the park. He forgot to put one of those little leash things on, on one of us. We just kind of wander off. And Jesus is looking at his millions of kids behind him. He's like, where's Brian? What happened to Brian? Where did he go? That, that, that is not the picture that Jesus paints. Jesus says, the only one that has been lost from me is the one that was meant to be lost. Judas. So that scripture might be fulfilled. I have kept all of them. So now, Father, you keep them as I leave. And there is no plans. If Jesus can keep us, there is no plans in the Father losing us either. And so Jesus prays that we be kept like the Father has urged us to keep. And so uh, uh, like like he has kept us, he prays that the Father keep us. And so let me assure you of this, right? Let me assure you of this. God is not in the business of letting you go. He will walk with you. He will stick with you. He will convict you even when you don't want to be convicted. He will have that, that, that pesky church member calling you and checking on you when you don't want to be called on and checked on. Brother George raising his hands like, amen to that, right? These guys, they call people all the time. I don't want to talk to these guys. But God is not in the business of letting those who are his. He's not in the business of letting them go. He's in the business of keeping. He tells them, he prays to the Father, not only that he keep them like he kept them, and not only that he keep them one, but he also keeps them apart from the world while they remain in the world. That's important. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 15 says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Christ prays for the Father to keep us in the midst of a world that's constantly pushing and leaning on us in such a way to push us out from his from his grasp. And here's why we need help to do that. Because wherever God's standards are being raised in this world, the world will seek to oppose those standards. If you're looking, if you're looking to find help to stay in God by looking to the world, I got news for you, it ain't there. The world often likes the results. That God's standards bring, the joy that it brings, the love that it brings, the peace that it brings. But see, the thing about, the thing about that is that those, those results come with His standards. And so whenever His standards are applied, that's when the world begins to balk. Because the world despises the necessity to give up control to another. The necessity to follow the will of someone else besides themselves. The world oftentimes loves the ideal of sacrifice for the sake of another, but it will despise the ideal of sacrificing my own way and my own opinion on an issue, whether it be sexuality, work, home, marriage, worship, you name it. See, Jesus knows that the idol of self is a vicious idol to be set free from. 
People will fight you tooth and nail to keep control of their lives. And that's why he says the world will hate them. Because what I am asking for is that they lay down their lives for me. And the world may like the joy that they see. The world may like the peace that they see. But the world does not like the idea of losing control. So he says, Father, this is going to be tough. But I pray that you keep them in the midst of that. You may feel the pressure of that even in your own life right now, tempting you to flee from the ways of Christ and follow the ways of this world, tempted to take matters in your own hands, for example. This old letting your neighbor slap you in the face thing ain't working for me. You know what I mean? Maybe maybe I should put the gloves on like they got the gloves on and let's really go to blows. But isn't it encouraging to know that 2,000 years ago, Jesus was praying a prayer for his disciples. And that prayer is the same desire that he has for you. That even in the midst of this world that you be kept. But he's not praying that you be out of this world. He's not praying for you to be isolated from this world. He says, hey, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them. From the evil one while they're in it. I know what you've heard. Christianity and some people, they want to isolate. They want to go into a corner, go into a cave somewhere, right? Just wait this thing out until Jesus comes back. You've seen that. So it's like, no, we can't, we can't do anything with them, right? We can't go to work with them. Can't do anything with them. Can't go to the with them. Can't play with them. Do anything. We just have to go and hide. Let's wait this thing out. Jesus is going to come back when Jesus comes back. Hey, we're all going glory. Jesus, no, 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 no. Listen, I'm not taking you out of the world. That's not the prayer. I'm praying that you keep them in the midst of the world. So here's what that means. Salt has to continue to be salt. Light has to continue to be light. See, if you're in a cave, then your light isn't shining in darkness. If your salt remains in a jar, then it isn't providing flavor to anything in in, in the refrigerator. It isn't preserving anything. You are salt. In order to operate in your calling, you must be places where preservation is needed. You are light. In order to fulfill your purpose, you must be in places where darkness exists. So Jesus says, I'm not praying that they leave. I'm praying that they be kept while they're here fulfilling the mission that I've given them, which is to be salt and light. Yes, be different, but be present. Be distinct, but be present. Are you tracking with that? And then lastly, he says that they, he wants, he wants the Lord or he wants the Father to keep them by sanctifying them in the truth. Verse 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. See, the same thing that brought you to the faith, which is the word. The word of Christ, the gospel message of Jesus Christ is the same thing that will keep you in the faith. Sanctify means to set aside. It means to put aside for purpose. God says that it is through the word, the truth about himself, that you are being set aside for his purpose. And when I say purpose, I mean mission. He sets you aside for work. He sets you aside to go about his mission in the world. 
Jesus says the same thing about himself. He says, as you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. And what way did, in what way did God the Father send Jesus into the world? He sent them into the world on mission. To win a people to himself. And it's the same way that he has set you aside and sent you into the world to be on mission, to continue to proclaim the message that Jesus proclaimed while he was here. The message about himself and in so doing to win people to himself. Verse 19 says, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Listen to this. Jesus says, I set myself aside. And how does he do that? He does that ultimately on the cross. He goes up. No man put him there without his, without his permission. He willfully laid down his life. So that you might be sanctified. So that you might be set apart. So that you might have the privilege to live on mission for God. So that you might have the privilege to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who don't know it. So that you might have the privilege of being sought and preserving a world that's spoiling around you. So that you might have the privilege to shine darkness or shine light in the midst of darkness. He set himself aside on the cross. Consecrated himself. And he prays, now that I've done that, God, now that I've done that, Father, do that in them. Set them apart. Send them out. Let them accomplish the purposes in which you have established for them. And here's the beautiful news about that. Jesus prays this prayer for his friends. He prays this prayer for his disciples. He prays this prayer of keeping. And he asks the Lord to keep them in the midst of a turbulent world that's pushing against them. And to keep them unified and to not allow them to grow uh, to grow divided. And to sanctify them and set them apart for the purpose of mission. So that they might advance the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world. And here's the beautiful thing about it. God the Father answers and honors the prayer. Because you have a group that not only when Jesus, when Jesus resurrects and he leaves, they go forth in power. And turn the world upside down. And there is not a single one of them who fell away. Except for the one that was intended. So that scripture may be fulfilled. And so Jesus answered the prayer. Or the father answers and honors the prayer that his son made for his friend. So here's the news for you. He does the same with yours. When Jesus prays the prayer for us. That we be kept. God the Father answers and honors. When he prays the prayer that we we not be swallowed up by the world, God the Father answers and honors. When he prays the prayer that we be sent out and we be salt and we be light, God the Father will ensure that that prayer is answered. And so go forth with the confidence that Jesus is praying but not only that, not only that he has prayed, but that the Father is answering. Amen.